Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But therapy can't fix what's gone wrong. It can't change the fact you had a horrible mother or a terrible tragedy or the things that have happened to you. But the thing that it enables, or I hope it enables is it changes your relationship with what's happened to you so that you, given what has happened to you, you can find a way of accommodating it, allowing it and living with it and living and thriving and growing through your life. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Hello everyone, as we come to an end of season 10, I can't believe we have recorded 10 seasons already and each one has been such a joy for me to do, so I hope you've enjoyed them. But before we end, I wanted to give you a special live bonus episode, which I recorded at a breakfast event for the Arts Club with the one and only psychotherapist, leading expert on grief, Julia Samuel. As said, she is a globally leading psychotherapist and best-selling author of three books. In this episode, I quiz her about her new book called Every Family Has a Story, which sees her shift from her work with individuals to sessions with a wide variety of families. She reveals how deeply we are influenced by our families and offers insights into how families can face changes together. On my podcast, I always ask my guests uh, the same first two questions. So before we dive into family, would you mind sharing a quote that you return to often and why? I I mean, I think it is this too shall pass, um, that however bad this is, that it will pass. But also when things are really good, that will pass too. And we somehow hold on to the bad stuff will pass but actually forget that, you know, life is ups and downs. And we kind of have this false view of life that when we're doing it right, life is this sort of stairway to heaven that, we're, you know, we're going to get there. But life is always this ups and downs and it's finding ways to manage that and build our resilience and enjoy the ups, even though there's inevitably going to be um, a dark path. And what is a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? I think the main thing is that love matters. I think love is the underpinning emotion and the most important thing for all of us. Love in action, love in moving forward, love in stepping back, loving in knowing, loving in fighting. 
And that if we do it with love, we can manage and build relationships. And relationships are the thing that enable us to um, have meaningful lives, live longer, happier, healthier, wealthier. And so it's the thing that matters most. And this leads me really nicely into talking about family. And you write, it's not what happens to a family, but the relationships within them. Why did you decide to dedicate your third book to exploring the family dynamic? For me, family is the bedrock of my life. And I think it matters to all of us. And I think in our culture, we focused a lot on parenting and on individuals and what their needs are. And we haven't really focused or discussed at all about multi-generation families and the whole wider family system. And the thing that I am very interested in is what gets passed down transgenerationally in families from one generation to the next. And what research shows is that when there's been a difficulty, a crisis, you know, it could be a loss, it could be losing your job, it could be suicide... When that isn't processed and dealt with in that generation where it happens, it gets passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And then that person deals with it. And the way it gets passed down is in two kind of pathways, if you like. One is that it's the things that we do to block the pain that in the end do us harm. So the defences we use to block the pain of the shame of losing our job or the devastation of a suicide, the defences that we use to block it are what we model to other members of our family, to our children. And then children learn by observing the adults around them, not from what they say. So they learn to deal with difficulty by shutting down and getting on or whatever the defence mechanism is. But we also know from lots of very good worldwide research, the one I looked at was Rachel Yehuda in Israel, is that it gets passed down epigenetically. PTSD from a traumatic experience is not inevitable. So only 10% of people who've had a traumatic experience get PTSD. But you can have heightened levels of cortisol that are in your body. And those get transferred through the generations in your womb. And that, the, the evidence shows that that's for three generations. And that heightened level of cortisol, of course, puts your whole body on alert into fight or flight so that you react to small things in a much more heightened state. In order to be able to connect to ourselves, to feel close to people, to kind of feel safe and open, we have to be able to self-regulate. We have to be able to feel calm, to feel safe in our bodies, safe in our minds, safe around our kitchen table. And if we're constantly in kind of fourth gear, we are, you know, if you're like, if you're nervous about something, you can't really think properly. You can't process information. And however nice someone is being to you, you can't really take it in. You can kind of have a hug, but you don't internalize it. You don't feel it. And so that part of the book was showing how, through telling family stories, how we can shift the whole pattern in, in the multi-generation families so that they can feel more connected and open and close to each other. 
It is such a beautiful um, journey that you go on through all these different families too. And I thought it was fascinating, the research you share around how um, if a child or person for that matter knows more about their family history, research shows that they have a higher self-esteem and confidence. Why do you think that is? And I would love to know more about that. I don't know if it's to do with sort of evolutionary of DNA. The, what the research shows is that if you know, let's say, the, your parents' story of where they met where your grandparents were born, if you can do a genogram of your family and kind of know the stories of your family, you have a sense of um, being resilient. I mean, my guess is it's to do with belonging and that you feel that you have real roots in the place where you stand and that you know that you can... It's like an oak tree that has really good roots. If you know the stories that are coming down to you and you understand them. Those are the stories that you're telling yourself. And it's often the stories that we don't know, the secrets, the lies that are untold that leave gaps in our understanding. And so then the roots in ourselves are much shallower. They don't go so deep and there's less resources to get from them. Um, and so I think we have this feeling of precarity and scarcity and we sort of see the world as a bit more threatening. Whereas if you really know where you belong and where you've come from, you feel like you can weather quite a lot of storms. You touch upon that there is a fear around being truthful, especially with children, because obviously things do go wrong and there is a natural tendency for us to think, well, if the children don't know, then then we are protecting them. But through your work, you're saying that actually that isn't quite the case. It's the reverse is the case. Um, of course, every, you know, when I work with parents um, who come to me because there's been a tragedy, you know, the first thing I say to them is that you know yourself and your family best. So whatever I'm saying would have to go into the sort of culture of your belief system. But what certainly my, you know, over 30 years experience and um, research shows is that by wanting to protect children, by not telling them the truth, the children often feel excluded. And also what children don't know, they make up. And what they make up is limitless and frightening. So however hard the truth is, it's much better than nothing is happening or a lie. I think people try and do it by saying, don't worry, it's going to be fine. But also children read our eyes, they read our bodies. A six-month-old would know if something terrible has happened. They'd feel it in their mother's um, body. They'd sense it around the room. And I remember someone saying to me once, if you're going to start fooling a section of the population, don't start with the under fours. <laughs> <laughs> Because they, you know, they read stuff. And if you, they say, if you, they say, mummy, what's wrong? And she says, nothing, darling. Then how do they trust what she's actually telling you? Whereas how to speak to children has to be age developmentally appropriate. But you need to use language that is direct and that they understand. So one of my big objections in the language of grief is lost and passed away. Children lose things every day, but they find them again. People don't pass away, they die. And I think that the kind of language, concrete language, that actually we need to use for ourselves and for children, because, you know, how you find a way of grieving is facing the reality of the loss. And so if you're using 
real language. That is the reality you can find a way of coming to terms with. And my last thing on this is I often think that adults behave and feel like children when they're suffering and that we go to child self and also we go to our child first defense mechanisms and the ones that we were taught. And I think that's very useful knowing that in ourselves when we're communicating to our children um, that we need to kind of stabilize ourselves and recognize what's going on in us so it isn't like an adult child talking to a child. I'm thinking to myself, oh God, what's my child self reactions? <laughs> um, um, I mean, a lot of them are wonderful. You know, they're the simplest feelings, aren't they? Like joy and skipping and... Yeah, but also being sad, but sad is really healthy too. So one of the metaphors for grieving children is jumping in and out of puddles that you can jump, a child can jump in a puddle and be very sad and jump out of a puddle, nick their sister's ice cream, have a dance and roar with laughter and then jump in the puddle again. And actually, if we did that as adults, if we allowed ourselves to know what we are feeling, name what we are feeling, finding ways in privacy of expressing it, it would release us to go out and skip and dance and have joy. I love one of the tips in relation to this that you share in the book. Um, and it was very sweet in one of Julia's th uh, family therapy sessions. One of the children asked her father if he would be a little less reactive. And so you taught them the magic pause. <laughs> yes. Would you telling us a bit about that? Well, too, so one of the great joys for me in writing this book was having whole families um, talking to me at the same time. So I had, in one family, like the Berger family, I had the 92-year-old great-grandmother, her 65-year-old daughter, her 40-year-old daughter, and her granddaughter, who's 20. They were an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family. And they were all on the screen together. And one of the great joys of that was... You know, in families, you, everybody has their own version of a story. Like, I'm the clever one, and <laughs> that version was this, and no, we were there. And what happened with me facilitating all of them together was that they could learn their collective story. But often there were battles, and my job as a therapist was to go, pause, take a breath, don't say the first thing that comes into your mouth <laughs> and kind of think about it and then find a way of saying what you actually want to say, not the reflexive punch. But one of the other great things was that I worked with, there were a couple that were a separated couple and the dad had a new relationship and new children and the children um, he'd had with his first partner were, were very distressed. And so I had his first partner and him and his teenage son. And the teenage son, after about 20 minutes in the first session, he put his head down like this with his hoodie over his head. <laughs> and all of his body language just spoke to all of us about what was going on. It's like the, the worst thing about families that separate isn't necessarily the separation and the divorce. It's the conflict between the parents. And these two had had unrelenting conflict for 10 years. And he just looked like he'd been hammered by their conflict. So when I asked them to see what he was doing and what they felt he was saying by putting his head on his lap, they could begin to see the impact on him of their relationship and they could begin to think about their children and what was best for their children rather than constantly trying to score win um, with each other. 
I think for many people, when the word therapy even comes up or even the suggestion of let's all go to family therapy, it is met by a lot of fear because I think no parent wants to think they've done a bad job and maybe they're not even ready to hear any feedback that could suggest it. How do you navigate that? Because we all obviously get things wrong as parents. So how can you stay quite objective with this feedback, even if it's quite painful to hear? I I think all families, parents, grandparents are doing the best they can, given who they are, what's happening to them and what they know. And I think all families move on a spectrum of function and dysfunction, depending on what the internal and the external stresses are. So no one, you know, a bit like um, all families have rocky patches and difficult times. But when, by the time people have come to therapy, of course, they're very nervous because they're scared they are going to expose aspects of themselves that they've been hiding and of course, the, the truth is you can't fix what you don't face. So the, the more energy you've been doing to block the thing that has been hurting you and probably playing out and hurting your family as well is the thing that you need to be talking about. And I think what most people find is that in naming what they feel bad about and expressing it, the toxicity of it and their relationship with it changes. So, I, I mean, I think but therapy can't fix what's gone wrong. It can't change the fact you had a horrible mother or a terrible tragedy or the things that have happened to you. But the thing that it enables, or I hope it enables, is it changes your relationship with what's happened to you so that you, given what has happened to you, you can find a way of accommodating it, allowing it and living with it and living and thriving and growing through your life. And like I said at the beginning, it's the things that you do to block the pain of it, the difficulty, all the aspects of yourself that you don't like, that in the end hold you fixed and stuck. And if you think of yourself as an emotional system, if you block the pain, you incrementally block the joy. So your capacity to feel is foreshortened. So your bandwidth of experience is much narrower. You grind your way through your day. You kind of get through your day because you're using so much energy to block all the stuff that you find intolerable and difficult to face. And incrementally through therapy, in facing it, it expands what, what we call the kind of window of tolerance. You find that your window of being able to have great washes of feeling or waves of feeling through your system, you find a way of tolerating them and you then become much more robust because you're not white knuckling against it. You kind of go, oh, and it comes through. And then it, so we are wired for emotions to give us information that something is going on. And that information is alerting us to, at its most simple level, danger. When we block those emotions and stuff them down with busyness, alcohol, power, sex, drugs, gambling, whatever it is, they stay stuck and they don't give us the required information to know that we have to adapt to our new circumstances. And this brings me to something that you wrote when you say, 
we often judge people on how they look, not how they feel. And I think this couldn't be more true given the culture that we now live in with social media and us all very concerned around this kind of aesthetic of our life and judging people upon that. But when it comes to families on the surface, we may look at some and think, oh, they've just got it so right. And obviously that's not the case. No, I mean, my first case study was about a very privileged family, an aristocratic family. And on the surface, people would have assumed they live in this wonderful castle, there's a moat, they own all this land, they have no financial worries. So I think anyone looking at them from the outside would say, well, they're okay, (laughs) they're sorted. But of course, every family has its own dysfunctions and difficulties. And theirs were many, many fold. And the person I work with and his family, he was called Ivo, he threw kind of unexpected and really thoughtless means find out that his biological father wasn't his father. It was a real blow. You know, do I belong in Norfolk? Am I a win? Have I lost half my family because, you know, they're not biologically my family? And I think with more and more with me in 23, quite a lot of people are giving it as Christmas presents and then their partner or (laughs) godchild or, you know, find out that... (laughs) A friend of mine, I haven't a friend of mine, he said, please give me socks next time. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it is happening much, much more. I hear more and more cases of people doing it as a fun thing. Anyhow, his wasn't a fun thing. It was because someone saw the photograph in, in somebody else's house of someone who looked like his son and said, you must be related to this man. But what they had was immense dysfunction and his mother had lied to him unremittingly for decades and terrifyingly she came into my small little counselling room with his sister and his mother and she's incredibly grand on a stick and whatever I said to her she didn't answer she spoke as if it was a completely foreign language and she'd obviously done that her whole life deflected I mean how, how you know the family I was born into was similar in the sense that we talked about everything that didn't matter and absolutely nothing that mattered and she was very much like that she knew why she was there mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And she acted like it was just, oh, it's so tiring coming and, you know, <laughs> parking the car. And she talked a lot about her very grand childhood. And, but then the daughter challenged her and said, well, you know that Robert's the father. And she stood up, very grand, swept out and turned to her son and said, he is, and left. 
And that's a lot of what that generation do is that they drop a bomb and they'll leave because they can't deal with the emotional uh, fallout from the news. And she very grandly left. But also the thing that came from that family was that they invested in stuff and not each other. So there was a huge amount of conflict about pictures and, and land. But actually they treated each other like they were a piece of shit, basically. And it was so different. For me. I worked in the NHS for 25 years. So I've worked with many families who are refugees or you know, come from very, very tough backgrounds. And the one thing that is true of them, the thing that matters to them most are the people in their lives. They don't have any money. They don't have any safety. They don't even have the land they were born in. But they will do anything to protect their children. What in all your research have you found to be common amongst the most tightly knit families or most psychologically healthy families? One of the things that I learned from the book and working with three and four generations was, I mean, I think it's changing now, but the matriarchal line was very, very powerful. The great-grandmothers, the grandmothers in those families. And it was a, it's a soft power. It isn't a, a kind of pushy, dominating power, but it was immensely influential in the family system. So I worked with a black Afro-Caribbean family and they'd had a a, a tragedy. Their five-year-old daughter had died and I'd worked with them before at St. Mary's and then I worked with them as a whole family because all the siblings had fallen out after the child had died. And that often happens, that there's a devastating tragedy but the family can't manage the pain of it and so everybody kind of disappears because they don't know how to cope with it and so my work was to try and help reconfigure them as a family and and reconnect them and what I felt with Grace and the her sort of powerful influence was that she was well-intentioned everybody trusted her they knew even if they disagreed with her they knew that her intention was for the good of them it wasn't sort of for herself and was extraordinary. One of the small things, so I, I did, I'm sure you'll come to it, but I did 12 touchstones for family. And I think one of the things that we underestimate in family is our kind of elevating habits to rituals, you know, like Christmas, like Mother's Day, like birthdays. But she had become a Jehovah's Witness, much to the fury of everybody in her family. So they didn't have Christmas. And actually not having that Christmas lunch, that pivotal thing where everyone came together and knew what they were doing, and it was always held in Patience's house, that was the beginning of a fragmentation of the family. And so the young grandson suggested they have a happy day instead of Christmas. And that was the beginning of them kind of reconnecting and re-knitting their their relationships. And it was such a small thing, but it was so powerful. That's definitely one of the key takeaways I got from this book was the power of ritual and how important and influential it is on how everybody feels in this community. I think it's because... You know, our brains are wired to look for danger. So we have a negative bias. So we're constantly looking for danger. But also our brain is a prediction machine. It is looking for safety and familiarity. And rituals with that predictability are stabilizing touchstones for connection in families. So that if you know as a family you always meet on everyone's birthday or that you always meet 
you know, Thanksgiving in the States or, or Christmas here or Mother's Day, those are in you and they are reliable, predictable places if you have a family that you want to be with where you can come together as family. Of course, those happy days for families that are um, estranged, who have difficult and complex relationships, are very difficult days. And what we need as human beings, I think, particularly in such a fast-paced, you know, so much of what we feel and what's going on is invisible. Having external calendar touchstones that you can rely on, that you can go to, is, I think, incredibly powerful. And honestly, I think it's the kitchen table as well. And the other thing about food together is our sense of smell is 10 times stronger than any of our other senses. Smelling your mother's curry, smelling your dad's, you know, roast beef, that will be in you. And so having, as parents and as grandparents, creating those memories of smells and places, people go back to and live off for the rest of their lives, even when those places are no longer present. I'd love to talk about codependency in family, because the more I reflect on it, I do think maybe I'm really codependent with my mother. And she's actually caused me to be a terrible decision maker, because I have to call her and be like, but what do you think? And um, so what is the line between healthy closeness and codependency? I mean, always these lines of negotiation are incredibly complicated. And I think they they can be very grey and there can be days that you're codependent and days that you're interdependent. And so, you know, I think we move in our states all the time. But codependent is where we, our sense of self is, resides in the other person so that we we don't trust our instincts, our decisions, our own point of view, our own knowledge, or our sense of being okay in the world, of being good enough. We hand it over, in, project it into the person of, of somebody else. And then often they are dysfunctional, actually. So codependency is most often used for alcoholic or drug addiction relationships, so that you have this codependency where you have the addict and the codependent, and their moods kind of affect and influence each other, but they're not operating interdependently. So I think this idea of separateness is very unhelpful. I think we are wired to connect and to be in relationship, and we need each other. And I don't think being close and asking opinions means that you're codependent. It depends the level of it. I mean, what is also true is that millennials have been the most parented generation in history. So they have been, had more time and attention, which is no bad thing than the generation before them, all the generations before them. But also what people talk about is emerging adulthood. So I left home at 16. I got married at 20. My parents, if I left the house, they didn't hear me again for months. I mean, and they never thought about it. And that was very much a norm in that generation. What Jeffrey Arnett talks about in emerging adulthood is that because their children have been more parented, because they've been better educated, they go to universities, because they're likely to have to work until they're 75, because they're likely, hopefully, to live longer, they're not fully mature until they're 25 or 28. And often there are conflicts in families like mine where, you know, I haven't actually said it to my children, but I could have done, like, 
what are you on? You're still, you haven't got a job and you're 25. You're still doing a master's. You're still traveling. You're still, and he talks about the emerging adulthood as a time to experiment, to try things out, to kind of find out what they believe in and what matters, which sort of makes sense if they have these much, much longer lives. And, and all of that has been expanded, I think. I and mean, I don't think we, culturally we've fully integrated that in our understanding. Divorce is obviously much more common than marriage. And marriage is much less. Yes. So what is your advice on supporting children through the separation process, especially when it, in relation to developing their attachment styles and how potentially separation could affect their attachment styles? So just for those of you that don't know what an attachment style is, attachment style is the template, the operating system that you gain through in your childhood from the type of parenting that you have and it's either secure attachment which is predictable reliable and secure or it's unpredictable and insecure and that can be avoidant or anxious how you use that operating system will affect every relationship you have so who you're with whether it's your siblings your workmates and your love um, relationships but also it gets triggered by loss so divorce is a loss it's what I call a living loss so how the parent responds to the loss through divorce will both model it to the children and that's how they will learn to manage difficulty and loss but also if they have secure attachment they're more likely to be able to be reliable to communicate well to kind of stabilize to be able to stabilize the children and their families and what the research shows is that it isn't divorce, as I said before, that damages children, but conflict between the parents. And one of the biggest difficulties that came out in the case study I did with the Taylors and the Smiths was this thing called loyalty binds. So children do very well if their parents are happy and actually do very well if their parents are in happy, loving relationships because that gives them a template to understand we can love more than one person, we can love lots of people, and there isn't just a one person in our life and that the life is a disaster. They, and the fact of it being committed, loving relationship enables them to trust it in the next relationship. But the difficulty for the children is in this thing called loyalty binds, that when, say you had a, a 10-year-old son who goes from his mother's house to his dad's house and his dad has a new girlfriend or a new partner with a new baby, that 10-year-old boy is feeling disloyal to his mum left at home. And so he's torn when he's with his dad. I can't be nice to my stepmom. I want my dad's attention. I'm jealous that he's giving attention to my stepmom. But also, I want to have a nice time because all of us want to be able to be secure and happy in both places. And we have the capacity to do that. So how the parents allow the children to build the relationships with the step people in their families and trust them and love them will have a massive influence on their outcome. Because otherwise they're taking disturbing splits constantly between the two houses and that's what does them harm. It's so fascinating. I think perhaps like some tension would arise is, you know, half the family, for example, would want therapy. They would want to process all of these hidden 
emotions that are often not spoken about. But what is your advice to someone who really does want to move the family forward and is met with resistance? I think that's probably most families. So I think asking somebody and eyeballing them, you will most likely pull their defences and they'll tell you to back off. So a way to begin the communication of something that you really want them to take on board is in small, tiny steps. Not one like sitting down, I want us to go to family therapy. (laughs) You know, come to family therapy, we're so dysfunctional and you're useless and, you know, I'm fed up with the way you act out and that doesn't work, surprisingly. (laughs) So, I mean, I think one of the best ways with families is, for instance, walking and talking so that you're in rhythm together, you're in the space In moving, you move energy, you move thoughts. You're not eyeballing each other. You're looking at the ground. And so the person who has the idea could start with saying, you know, I read a book about family therapy. I'm really interested in family therapy. I'm so interested that you can have family therapy for six sessions as opposed to like 50 in individual therapy and have the same outcomes. Or you could ask about... Dad, what did your mother think about money? What did your mother think about sex? Think about the messages, get the beliefs of what has been passed down about sex, money, work, children, family. So you can do it sideways in small little conversations and then incrementally over time, then you can begin to think, I'd really love to do it. Do one or two of you want to join us? Maybe not get everybody. And then the ones who aren't in will probably want to come in because it's worse being talked about. (laughs) You mentioned in in that answer about this idea of patterns, right? You know, what did your mother think about work, money, their relationship to it? Because obviously we often reflect the patterns that were in previous generations. What are your thoughts and advice for people who want to break the patterns of the past and yet because of family are constantly surrounded by them and reinforced by them? I mean, the first step is awareness. And I, my instinct when bad news comes, I had it the other day, is no, I am not going to read that full email. No, I'm not going to speak to that person. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens faster than any years of experience and knowledge can tell me. That is, whoom, it literally is so quick. But <laughs> the thing about awareness is, when you get out of the kind of first response, your automatic response, you can allow yourself to think and you can allow yourself to self-regulate, to stabilise, to breathe, get some support. So, I mean, I got my husband, poor thing, to sit (laughs) with me and I got him to read the email first and then I got him to tell me roughly what it said. (laughs) I didn't want the really horrible things, but roughly what the message was. And that's all I could deal with that day. And so I sent a message saying, I am on this and I'll come back to you. So I gave myself time to then eventually deal with it. You know, that's my response. All of us have our automatic response and it's the awareness of it and not acting out on that first response that supports us in changing our patterns. And my last question is just to really touch upon how contagious emotions are. Well, I mean, they're contagious here. So, I mean, all of us arrived in the room not knowing each other, a little bit wary, 
delicious breakfast. <laughs> but I think even as we've been in the room and everyone has heard their stories, they've had their own stories have been running in their minds and people have opened. And so it feels like it's a more open room already. It feels safer as people have heard things that they resonate with. But also we are wired for emotions to be contagious so that, you know, if I'm really distressed, I may not have words, but my everything in my body, 70% of communication is nonverbal, will be transmitting distress by the way I'm reading and breathing, by the way that my eyes are looking, the way I'm holding my body. And that will fire the distress into your body and you will then go, oh! And often that is the difficulty in families when people kind of leave the room when things are going wrong. And it, you know, obviously my specialty is grief. It always happens with grief that the difficulty of sitting with and allowing difficult feelings to be expressed, to be named and staying with them goes against our instincts often because they're uncomfortable. But when we can, it deepens and opens our resources within us. And also it means that we have closer connections. So when you've had difficult times, the people who've sat with you, who've spoon fed you vodka and tonic or, you know, taken you for a walk or just turned up with pizza, those are the people who can sit with you. They don't fix it. No one can fix somebody else's problems, but they, they can love you and be with you. And that is the, the biggest thing. Wow, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Julia, for being such a fantastic guest. I highly recommend you all go out and buy Julia's new book, Every Family Has a Story, which is available in all bookshops and on Amazon. I'll make sure to add the links in the show notes along with Julia's website and Instagram handle. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.